last night, I dreamed I went to Manderley again and recorded a podcast, which was fun. Even in my dreams, I'm recording fucking podcasts. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to Ben Wheatley's latest exercise in spine-tingling terror. It is, of course, The Meg 2. No, it isn't. I'm just joking. It is Rebecca, his adaptation of the classic Daphne du Maurier novel. And joining me to discuss the Netflix movie that has resulted from this novel are three of my finest colleagues of such lethal cunning. And I have to say, I love their squadcast names they've chosen for this. Please welcome, as desperate Danvers, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, and I want to see I want to see Chris and Scott Thomas eat cow pie. That's all I want to see. <laughs> Massive horn sticking out of the pie. Uh, please welcome the second Mrs. De Nugent, John Nugent. Hello. How are you? I am well. Excellent. Well. Good. Small talk out of the way. Now we can move on. <laughs> yeah. And last but not least, of course, we have Empire's editor in chief, whose name in caps is the third Mrs. De Winter, and then in brackets. Actually, fuck him. Close brackets. Please explain yourself, Terry White. What's happening here? He did deserve the second Mrs. De Winter, never mind the third. Um, who is me? Yeah. Or are, the you, are you projecting? Are you projecting? Is this your Army Hammer marriage fantasy coming to you, life again? You've just joined me in a therapy session where it's me and, uh, and my husband, Army Hammer, and I'm telling him why he doesn't deserve me as the three Mrs. De Winter. We had to abandon the Call Me By Your Name spoiler special because it got pretty steamy in terms of Terry's slash fiction. She just, she just started reading out by the fourth page of, uh, of <laughs> Army Hammer thrustings, we decided to call it a day. Um, <sighs> <laughs> there are things only a wife knows. I don't even know what that means. Or a peach, for that matter. <laughs> oh, Chris, no. What? Oh, to be the stone. I could eat a peach for hours. <laughs> What's happening? Anyway, I yes. don't know. So this is a discussion of Rebecca, which is available right now on Netflix uh, and is in some cinemas as well. And uh, before we get into the movie, you're going to hear from the man who directed it, uh, Ben Wheatley, amazing director, of course. And this is a bit of a departure for him stylistically. And I think deliberately he chose not to make this a Ben Wheatley movie, at least the way we we consider a Ben Wheatley movie. For example, no one gets killed with a hammer, although someone does get killed with a dot hammer. But that's a spoiler, we'll get into it later on. But anyway, I caught up with Ben on Zoom, yes, I'm afraid, the dread Zoom, to have a big in-depth chat about the movie, the changes to the ending, the uh, additions to some of the characters, and much, much more. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined in this Rebecca spoiler special by the director of Rebecca, Mr. Ben Wheatley. How are you, sir? Very good, very good. Good, good, All the good. better for seeing into your front room. <laughs> this is my <laughs> secret man cave. <laughs> you've got you've got way more intelligent books than I have. I've got loads of Jack Reacher behind me. Yeah, what is all that? They look like graphic novels you've got there. What's that? Yeah, some graphic novels and some. This is this is all my geeky stuff. All the smart stuff. All the intelligent stuff is in the front room yeah, where people right. can see it. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. All the books, I have to look up the words every five seconds. What have you got behind you? You've got loads of stuff going on there. Well, this is this is Amy's stuff more, but over there, okay. this is 2000 ADs, the whole <laughs> one, one, one to um, 500. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing stuff. Well, listen, um, we're going to get into it right from the off. 
with the big question that's on everybody's lips uh, after watching Rebecca. Why doesn't Maxim just sell Mandalay in the first place and then move on to Blackpool and a new life? Well, <laughs> well we thought that, but it, but it would obviously implicate himself yeah. horribly. I mean, for a man who bangs on about how much he loves Mandalay, he doesn't spend a lot of time there, <laughs> you know. It's the most wonderful house in all of the world. Where are you, what are you doing in the south of France, mate? Oh, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> maybe it's because I murdered my wife. Oh, you know. Whoops, whoops. Yeah. There we go. That's it. I shouldn't have said that. Look, you just forget I said that. We'll move on. It'll be totally fine. But that's that's true. Once he gets there, he's like, she's everywhere. She's in every nook. She's in every cranny. You can imagine why he wouldn't want to spend a lot of time there. Yeah, I think so. I think he's a millstone around his neck. That place. Yeah, it's grim. And then he just, he obviously doesn't like parties that much. And he has to do these horrible parties. All these people turn up every, you know, each year and he hates everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I think he'd probably be more at home with a new build or something. Like a, (laughs) like a, a cube on the side of a cliff somewhere. Yeah, that'd be right. Uh, Maxim de Winter's grand designs. I'd love to see his episode. Well, uh, Maxim has broken his leg and his wife is now pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> I think they've been off more than they can chew. <laughs> <laughs> He's plowed all his savings into it. But uh, but Mandalay is a, is a great place to start, actually, because, you know, the, the book has possibly, I'd say, one of the top 10, I've never sat down and made a list here, Loben, one of the top 10 most famous lines in literature. And it's where you start the movie, essentially, you start with last night I dreamed I went to, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. Yeah. I guess when you're making this movie, you you have to start there, don't you? Did you did you try any other iterations? What last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay like I did the night before, or something, <laughs> <like that. laughs> or not starting there, or starting or starting somewhere else. But yeah, you, I guess you have to start at the beginning, right? Well, no, because it is a what. Well, what's it? The structure of the book itself is all a memory and a dream, you know, mm. in a way. So, it, 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 yeah, and it's all about whose point of view is it's from anyway. So, you know, it, it, it's not literally a kind of a linear structure, any of it, because it's it's a memory of a memory. You know, she's remembering yeah. a dream of the thing of the thing, you know. So, and that that kind of sets off all sorts of alarm bells for the viewer in terms of what's real and what's not, and um, yeah. who to take. Uh, who to take at face value and who not to, you know. And, mm. and then within that, in that kind of Russian doll structure, there's, do you believe Maxim? Anything he says. Do you believe mm-hmm. Danvers particularly? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I believe any of the stuff I've, I've heard about Rebecca at all from any of them. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, that, what that, De Win- Maxim de Winter says, it, it tells his tale of what happens in the cottage and the shooting of Rebecca. Mm. But it's like, he's the only witness. <laughs> yeah. Anything could have happened. You know, I don't believe yeah. a word of it, you know. It's interesting because you, you do introduce that idea of the dream within a dream, the memory within a dream, rightfully off. It's 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 there right, rightfully off. But 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 it's it's important that the film isn't perceived as entirely a dream. Yeah. I mean, as much as all films are a dream, aren't they? You know, I mean, that's always the thing I've... I've, I've what was interesting about Inception, isn't it? It's like the the, the last waking up of um, uh, of the, the main character is you leaving the cinema, isn't it? That's the idea of like the, the dream, the dream, the dream, the dreamer awakes and then you're outside and you go, oh my God, and now that's all a memory as well. Ah! You know, and I think it's that, that, that the, when you actually strip back cinema back to its rawest bits, you know, that is, you go into a dark room 
and then you have a light flickered in your face for 90 minutes and, <laughs> and forget your own life, you know, and I think that yeah. is essentially, a, it's always a waking dream. That is the structure. Mm. When I say you started with last night, I dreamed I went to, went to Mandalay again. I will get that line right at some point. Uh, <laughs> w- when you start with that, you don't actually start with that. You start with Rebecca, really. You start with the water, which then dissolves into her hair. So mm. already she's part of the fabric of this movie. Yeah. Haunting it in every way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the obsession that, that the second Mrs. De Winter has with it all, isn't it? That she's mm. she's obsessing about that, about the that Rebecca. Rebecca's in the boat the whole time that they're in Mandalay, just floating around, you know, and it's that, that's the horror of it. And it's the, and, the, the, and it's the same thing that I think makes Danvers so furious by the end of it is that apart from the, the realization of what's happened to her, but kind of best friend, is mm. that that all that time they've been worrying about her or thinking that she's in a in a tomb somewhere she's been floating around in the harbor you know and that, that's mm. horrific let's let's talk about and we've, we've talked about this before for the magazine but the, the, the idea that the, the film could be broken into three sections and the uh the first section is the the sun-kissed love story in monte carlo can you talk about that and making the love story work very, very quickly, you have to believe that Maxim and let's call her Daphne for the sake of it. Uh, Maxim and Daphne connect in that fairly short space of time. Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to. That was one of the big challenges of the movie, you know, that we we needed to make sure that that all worked and and that. And I also like the idea of that the film itself would take you on holiday for a bit, you know, <laughs> and it would take you somewhere. It would make you feel relaxed because you were somewhere beautiful you know and the sunshine sun shining everything's glamorous there's a chance a frisson in the air that there may be romance you know <laughs> and it, and i like films like that is a you know there's a it's almost like a subgenre isn't it is the uh of, of the of the, ho- the holiday film it's just people yeah. just standing around drinking fanta and stuff and kind of it being <laughs> going to discos and stuff you know and it's all cool and a slight romance happens and uh, and that's like that could have been a whole film in itself you know that might, yeah. would have been a perfectly great film so yeah and then uh, but it's also uh, it feels like the in the, the the kind of coal in the engine room of the movie that you have to make sure that the that there's that power to make to power it through into mandalay you know so that the that you believe that they that they have an affection for each other and that they there's a reason for them to keep that the, there's a reason that that relationship should cohese to get together otherwise it you know, it, it just you just as an audience member, you just say run away the whole time, just leave. If you don't like him, if you, a you didn't like him in the first place, why the why are you staying with him now? Now he's being an ass, you know. Yeah, yeah, precisely, and also because he the second part in the movie. I mean, the most substantial chunk of the movie, time wise, is spent at Manderley, and the key relationship there because Maxim's off screen quite a lot is. Danvers and Daphne, yeah. and so I think you need to cement that love story there. To also to you know also to say why she sticks around in a way she's sticking around for her husband everything yeah. she does in the end she says you know whether we can believe her or not everything she says at the end is just you know she did it for love yeah and it ha- you know so you have to cement that in the opening twenty minutes or so yeah by the end though I'm not so sure I even believe that <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't believe him. no I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> I think she's I think she's beyond that at that point you know it's love it's love. You know, I don't think it's love. <laughs> it's it's love of something other than him, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I think it's more about that that she's 
it's a similar thing that happens with Danvers. With Danvers, she, Danvers kind of goes, oh, you know, um, she kind of doesn't get on with the second Mrs. De Winter and she's like, um, uh, they're at loggerheads, which is the traditional idea of what that mo- what, what Rebecca is. But but by mm. towards the end of it, she goes, oh God, it was Maxim murdered her. Yeah. Uh, and now it, I, I hate him and I hate his house, you know, and that, and, and, and and the... Her rivalry or, or kind of gaslighting of the of, of the new wife just disappears, you know. And I think that it, that that shifting of of uh, agendas and goals is similar to what happens to the second Mrs. De Winter as well, where she kind of at the beginning she's like struggling to define herself, but then she does define herself, and and she becomes she knows who she is, and she comes to terms with the idea of what what Rebecca is as well, you know. So she's not yeah. worried anymore about being in a rivalry with her and she's starting to become her own person. And mm. I guess that that, by the end of it, it's like she's still with De Winter, but for how long? I don't know. I, you know, I think that she's almost, she's outgrown him emotionally, definitely. He's not, he, he's no longer in control of any of that stuff or or his opinion is certainly very much diminished in, ter- <laughs> in terms of her. You know, she's like, well, you know, yeah, I think it's all, all to do with him, her having to babysit him through the court case. It was just... He's obviously yeah. doesn't have he doesn't any sense or control over himself, you know, and that's all a bit embarrassing for their relationship. I think that that's where the cracks start to show a little bit. Yeah, he's not in the position of authority that he was when she first meets him. That's for sure. The, the, the second that uh, Rebecca, you know, floats up to the surface, he becomes really weak and diminished. And this is something again we talked about this for the magazine, but this is something that that is in play constantly throughout your careers, you know, with sightseers and elements of high rise and elements of free fire where the men are toxic and weak and gradually the women rise to the surface and they, they're the ones who assert authority. Yeah. That's the, that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. That's <laughs> Unfortunately, history is not bearing that out sadly, but yeah, yeah it's, um, yeah, I think that's the, that's the kind of, 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 the viewpoint I have, you know, and I, and I see again and again in, um, and, and, and why I pursue it in, in, in the films, you know. Yeah. And because he does, because once, once Rebecca is discovered, he, Maxim really just, he becomes a, a shell of himself and watching the movie, I've seen it a, a couple of times now, watching it the second time around is fascinating because every time you think when you meet him, first of all, you think he's irrespective of whether you know what happened in the book or not. Every time you look at him, he looks like a man who is haunted by grief and he's not, he's haunted by guilt, racked by guilt. And then when yeah. that guilt comes to surface, he just collapses. Yeah. And it's guilt. It's not even guilt of like the kind of, Oh God, I wish I hadn't done it kind. It's yeah. more like, I hope I don't get caught kind of guilt, <laughs> you know, which is the worst, <laughs> the worst kind of guilt. He's a, he's a horror show in that respect, you know? And, but yeah. that's, but that's the, the kind of the, the really sickly kind of um, joint that the whole, film rests on in that in the in the cottage scene where she he goes oh yes i i, I murdered my wife and and uh, and lily james's character goes oh thank god i thought you loved her you know it's like <laughs> oh my god so this is this is the happy ending is it that we get we're moving towards this is the romance and this is the the sickness and the, the sick twist that that de Maurier plays on the on the both the, the reader and the and the viewer you know that that then we become implicated in it. That, oh yeah, yeah, we're we're relieved that their their romance is going to continue, even though it's over yeah. the body of some um, poor woman. You know, yeah. and also the, the 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 fact that he shot her when he thought she was pregnant, and the only way the the, the 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 silver lining is that 
oh, actually, she had cancer, so that's okay. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's not okay in any respect. <laughs> None of it's okay. But uh, but it all seems to it all seems to play out. And it's like the, that. And that's one of the things I really loved about it. You know, the the, the guilt that you get your own guilt is later after the film's finished when you start to realize that maybe you picked the wrong side you know yeah how murky everything is, how murky everything is and how how much you're you're implicated in it and 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 a large part of it becomes from the sheer empathy and the and the way that you know the the, the sheer amount of, of sympathy that lily brings to daphne or the second mrs winter which takes far too long to say so i'm just going <laughs> to keep on with, i'm just going to keep on with daphne um because by the end, I mean, watching it again, knowing that there might be an element of unreliable narration about it, it is fascinating. You could look at the first 20 minutes as, does she blunder? Does she meet cute her way into this relationship with Maxim? Or is everything calculated? Is he a mark, for example, for her that she's infagling her way into his lifestyle? I don't know. I think it's more pragmatic than that. And that, and that, and it's the, that's the kind of, the world of privilege and, and that, that she's kind of desperate and on her ass and has got no money. And why wouldn't you, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think she's, she's certainly not a kind of predatory creature to uh-huh. start with, but I think, you know, why would you resist it? It seems like everything, if that's a romance that's going to happen, why not, you know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. to, to start with. And then, and then as it goes on, it's like, Oh God. And she does cling on to it. <laughs> quite a long time after it's gone quite sour so you think well but then at the same time it's, it's kind of very clear that her her options of aren't great <laughs> not great <laughs> no so what, what else are you going to do in that situation like and danvers says yeah. it to her as well like you know we are we're screwed you know basically mm. in terms of what what we can do from this point on if you don't play the game mm. and uh, but but the the last shot's really interesting there so in their cairo hotel room and they embrace, and again, he's he's the one who doesn't have the power in that relationship. It's it's all deferential. It's all it's all geared towards her uh, now, which is really interesting. Uh, and of course, yeah, is she looking directly at the camera at the at the at the very end? She may be. <laughs> Maybe you just felt she was <laughs> into your soul. Yeah, she is. She's looking at the audience, and she's going, yeah. "Hello, you know what's happened," mm. which is I'm I'm always a big fan of that. I mean, she, I mean. It's the same ending in um, Free Fire, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but you have the second, the second third of the movie is basically Danvers versus Daphne, the second Mrs. De Winter. And this series, this psychological warfare that Danvers unleashes upon her. And again, second or third time round, it's fascinating because the assumptions you have about Danvers, and I know this was a big thing for you going into this movie, is that she's one of literature's and cinema's great villains. But she's not that. She's she's operating from a place, you think a place of 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 haughtiness and there's an element of class warfare there, but it's also she's the one who's actually racked by grief in a way that Maxim isn't, yeah. right? which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's the... And that was part of like when I when I first got involved in the project was that was that misunderstanding of various characters or misremembering of how things were in these books in yeah. the book you know and I thought I thought I knew it and I didn't and I and I think that 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 was much more interesting to me that Danvers isn't like this kind of it's not as easy as just saying oh she's some horrible kind of character that you've got to kick against 
and once she's and she's defeated and destroyed and then everything is going to be okay but it, it's not that because she owns the secrets of of Vandalay. she is the one who's curious about it she you know and and she holds the torch for rebecca and 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 i think she's the antidote to these kind of of the she She's almost like the other side, the yin and the yang to the other side of the conversation, which is, oh, Rebecca slept with loads of people and therefore she's bad. Amber's is more like, oh, no, she's, she's more, more interesting than that. And that's not necessarily a thing. And it isn't, isn't the winter, you know, maybe the winter isn't as, you know, what he's saying isn't as true as, as you might think. And I think that, that balance is important because I think otherwise there's, there's a throwing of Danvers under the bus and also a throwing of Rebecca under the bus, which isn't quite right, I don't think. But at the same time, she is. There's the scene where she's essentially urging Daphne to commit suicide, which yeah. I thought was a That's really, hard to really, justify. It is hard to justify. It's hard. It's hard to get behind that when you're kind of rehabilitation of Danvers. You go, no, Danvers isn't that bad. Yeah. Just look past the scene where she deliberately misleads Daphne into wearing the dress in the first place, and then yeah, well, she few, doesn't push her out the window. But you know, a few slow blinks you'd have to do like during that sequence. <laughs> to get around that yeah. obviously she goes too far sometimes yeah. she gets excited yeah but gets i think carried away yeah exactly I, I you know i think that the um yeah i mean i think essentially she sees her as the as the she sees the second mrs de winter as the villain at that point you know her yeah. she she suffers from the same you know problems that um that everybody else does and that, that she's mi- she's misunderstanding what the situation is you know and, and when mm. she finally realizes who the real villain is then then her ire is properly focused and i think the but i think the burning down of mandalay is completely justified you know yeah that respect. yeah <laughs> it really is and it's interesting uh, obviously the book ends with uh, maxim and the second mrs de winter driving back to mandalay and you know the ashes are blowing towards them on the breeze and you know but we don't see beyond that there is an epilogue to this movie where we see Danvers meet her ultimate fate. We see obviously what happens and that they wind up in Cairo. Was that always in the script when you came on board? Was that something you wanted to add going beyond where De Maurier went with the book? Well, the book kind of, obviously the book still goes to Cairo because it starts with them. You know, that's the book end of the whole thing. So, so we know that bit, but the, the, I think that the audience demands to know what happens to Danvers. I don't think you can, you can't make the film and go, Oh, um, are they driving towards it? Oh, it's burned down. Oh, uh, I don't know what happened because people would just be furious about that. I don't think you'd, you'd, you'd be able to, you know, how much, and then you're dealing with how much is Danvers involved? How much is Favell involved in it? Yeah. You know, what's, what's actually happened and what the vagueness of it all is, but the, the kind of the, Danvers being caught in the fire in the house is a is a is a whole thing that was um, constructed for the Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's that that's a totally different thing. And so we didn't want to we couldn't really do that, you know, or didn't want to go anywhere near that. But I thought that the kind of the idea that she would destroy everything to do with Rebecca, including the boathouse, and then kind of return to the sea is is made more sense to me that she because she doesn't really know what you know how how Rebecca has died. She doesn't know that she's been shot mm. um, but she just assumes that something has happened in the boat that, that Maxim has killed her in some way and was that was that a difficult scene to sculpt the the final confrontation between the second Mrs. Winter and Danvers or Danny um, the second <laughs> Danny Danvers the, the first yeah the, Danny Dan, the first Mrs. Danvers uh, was that a difficult <laughs> scene to sculpt because uh, you know she 
at by this point, as you say, she's not angry necessarily with, with Lily James's character, but she leaves her with one hell of a doozy that would keep me awake at night, which is, you know, I, I wrote it down, you'll never know happiness. Yeah. But that's a that's a hell of a thing to say to someone before launching yourself into the surf. Yeah, you imagine you she was writing that you know, making that how how can I get her? Never know happiness. You'll always look a bit stupid. No, that's no good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Those, those shoes don't match. No, that's, that doesn't work. I don't. I never liked you. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that was clear. I mean, I think that I think that what was interesting about that for me was that 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 she's literally almost talking to the audience, and she's saying, and she's also saying, "I'm out of this film. This film is over for me. You know, it's over. We all know what's happened, and this film should end now. When with, with and it really should end with the death of. She's the death of truth in a way when she jumped into the sea, and then mm. after that, it's kind of. Um, uh, the second Mrs. De Winter kind of, kind of making the best of it all and tying it all up with a with a bow, and it's a kind of weird, happy ending which shouldn't, it isn't, you know, shouldn't be there really, you know, uh, mm. in terms of the, but makes sense in terms of the kind of the the, the dream logic of the whole thing, but it shouldn't, it, it, you know. But then there's like as I, I was thinking like there's almost like an the other version of the whole film is is Danvers. You know, um, being like a Agatha Christie character and kind of um, f- solving the murder, and then having Maxim taken off in handcuffs. You know, and that should have happened, really. You know, and that would have been in the in the library. You know, yeah. quite a lot of um, you know mismarpling about, and uh, you know that's the that's the, the 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 true moral happy ending of it. But that's not the that's not the in the Maurier world. No, it certainly isn't. <laughs> I can see Danvers on ITV every eight pm on Sundays. <laughs> Yeah, half the episode is her monstering some new person she's working for, and the other half is solving a murder. You know? <laughs> oh, not another long hair <laughs> brushing sequence, Danvers. <laughs> Who broke the ornament in the good room? This week, Danvers finds out. <laughs> well, I was thinking that there'd be a, quite a good series would be Danvers and Favell. You know, yeah. Favell. Favell's like you know getting petrol coupons or something during the Second World War and and being a spiv and. And and ra- raising money for his uh, racing car or something, and and uh, Danvers is out there occasionally chucking someone off a parapet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally relentless. I'm sure Netflix are listening into this. I'm, yeah. uh, you, you probably you probably already pitched this, but I'd be all in for that. I know. Absolutely. Well, the extended Demario universe is something that's important, you know. Dan- yeah. Danvers being chased by a load of birds. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, there's so much you could do. <laughs> there's enough there for two seasons absolutely. oh easily oh yeah yeah don't yeah. look now Danvers <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the the score is great the Clint Mantell score is fantastic and you also have these when the movie shifts from Monte Carlo to Mandalay and towards the end as well um, in the sequence after the red dress the, the, the costume ball you have these wonderful bursts of folk weird folk pop the pop in there uh, where did that come from and uh, was that something that you know you did you was that something that you'd planned right from the off or did you find it in the edit um well that tracks a pentangle track and um yeah yeah i mean i we found it in the edit i tried a lot of different music across the you know not a lot of needle drop stuff yeah um and that once that pentangle track came in it never went it kind of gripped onto the movie and wouldn't wouldn't you couldn't get it off and everyone <laughs> really enjoyed it which i because i thought i was being a bit i thought oh well you know this this you know this will get past a couple of edits and then there'll be you know the voice of doom will come in and say well it's a bit 
it's a bit pentangled and take it out but people really enjoyed it you know and I, and I for me the reason it's there is that it's a, it's British folk but it's you know it's a traditional song um and it kind of sounds it kind of sounds cheery but the actual lyrics are quite dark and, yeah. and it fits within the themes of the thing of like you know that he's he loved you know that the men are untrustworthy because they love you for being young and then when you get you're older then they get rid of you and and the different style you know men being like a vine and you're being like a tree i love all that stuff and then that comes back in all the, the dream sequences as well so it, it was um yeah and I, and I don't need much of an excuse to put folk music in stuff anyway so <laughs> <laughs> i've got form <laughs> yes, you went straight to the Ben Wheatley's folk, folk music playlist <laughs> yeah. track for, for random. That'll do. That'll do. Uh, and then just a couple of last things. We, we talked about this again for the magazine, but the costume ball sequence, I know, was a big thing for you. And uh, the revelation that Daphne is wearing the same dress as Rebecca once once wore. Um, you know, given its significance in the book and the previous iterations of this as well on you know Hitchcock and, and small screen as well. And also the fact this is something that's so famous it's been parodied. How do you get that right? How did you go about approaching that? Um I mean finding the right staircase was important. That's a big yeah. that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, and um then a lot of it's really to do with the reaction of the other characters some um, and, and her and her devastation, and, and I think I guess it's because we know what it is. We know the what personal embarrassment is, and it's a you know it's a, it's an emotion that is identifiable and easier to tap into than than something more abstract or massive like a big action thing. You know, so you know what that is that you've you've screwed up, and it's the, it's not just Maxim de Winter's face, which is you know he's obviously upset, but it's more it's like Keely Hawes's character just looking absolutely like she's going to be sick in her mouth, you know, and stuff like that. It's just, <laughs> that's that's what really sells it, that, you know, when you look from the person that's upset to the other people go, well, it can't be that bad, can it? And they're all like, no, it's, it's as bad as it can be, you know, and then you, then you have to start off. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, it's all down to those, those, uh, those, um, those performances and getting that, and getting that right, you know. Um, and I think we did a lot of stuff with the sound as well, where we turned it, like there's barely any sounds or just the creaking of steps and just to give it that space of you know ultimate kind of um awkwardness because that happens doesn't it when you know i don't know whether this has happened to you but whenever you've really fucked up in life something the sound seems to drop out it's yeah it's a it's a physical phenomenon and i did a load of research for it for for kill uh for free fire and i say a load of research i looked on wikipedia but to be fair but (laughs) but apparently that some people can look at seeing black and white under stress because really? the, the brain um, gets rid of anything that isn't useful for survival, which is probably a problem at a traffic light. But, you know, um, but the, also that, the, um, uh, that you can see in slow motion as well. Now that I did not know. Yeah. And people, it's a phenomenon that people talk about when they're, when they're in accidents that they, um, everything goes into slow motion and it's, it's because your brain is processing much, much faster. Amazing. See, I've learned something from this already. I didn't even need to already open one of your fancy hour. books behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're 30 minutes in. I've already, I've already, only now have I learned something. Um, but the real, real, real quick, uh, Ben, the last thing is when Daphne meets both Maxim and Danvers, she drops something. Was that deliberate? Is that significant? Yeah. I mean, it's a transaction, isn't it? It's, it's the transaction between the characters and it's, it kind of links to the gun as well. So it's, it's like, there's the money, the glove and the, it's, it's like, 
um, pragmatism and service and then murder. And it's like he passes the guilt onto her by giving her the gun. Danvers is more, you know, it's kind of she's going to serve her, but is she? And then the the money is like he, he's putting mm. money into her hand. So that's what it was. And that's what it was. <laughs> uh, and on that cheery note of, of murder and servitude and all sorts, uh, I'm going to let you go. But Ben, a pleasure as always, man. And this time I didn't ask you the same questions again because... Do you remember last time you came, you came on the live podcast last year and we realized afterwards I had asked you exactly the same questions that I asked you on the previous podcast <laughs> appearance? Oh, yes. Well, uh, yes. Well, what was the one where we did that was like the end of the world? It was like on a, on a like the two days before Christmas or something. Do you remember that one? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you came into our London studio. Yeah, it was uh, all just yeah. abandoned and you were like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> was a definite feeling that no one was going to be listening. <laughs> What can I say? Can I, I'm st- we're still here. We're still here. Next time you're on, I'll ask you the exact same questions and you give the exact same answers. No worries. Don't you, that's a guarantee. <laughs> that is. That's the Chris Hewitt guarantee right there. Uh, ben, a pleasure as always, man. Thanks so much. Indeed. Cheers, Chris. Okay, so that was Ben Wheatley. And uh, now it is time for us to dig in to Rebecca, to go back to Manderley again and have a chat about this movie. And I will say we represent all spectrums of opinion on this film, which has been getting a kicking. Well, not a huge kicking. I am not in the kicking corner, I have to say. I really like this movie and I like a lot of what he tried to do with it. Um, Helen, where do you stand on this? I was a little bit more mixed. I think I wanted it to feel a little bit more Ben Wheatley and a little bit less generic pretty person film. Um, and and that was my big disappointment with it, I think. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous looking and, you know, I've nothing against gorgeous people, but I, I just felt like there could have been more. It just didn't feel very gothic, maybe, to me. John, you wrote the three-star Empire Review, so I think we know where, you, where you're landing on this film. <laughs> Three stars is a recommendation. Some good bits, Three some bad bits. Three stars is a recommendation. It, it certainly yeah, is. Yeah, I, I, I didn't hate this film. Um, I wanted to like it more. I'm a huge Ben Wheatley fan, I think, uh, there isn't a film of his that I didn't like, uh, and this film I didn't, I didn't not like. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I want, but I really wanted to like it more, and I really wanted uh, more of a, a Ben Wheatley spin on it, as as Helen says. I th- I think it could have done with um, more of his voice. It felt like uh, perhaps he was adapting the book a bit too closely and it did yeah it did feel quite conventional for him which is not something you expect from a filmmaker like him but i guess we can we can get into that yeah terry and you're i think it's fair to say you're in the uh the opposite corner aren't you you're you're are you in the kicking corner where where are you (laughs) uh yeah i i probably am actually with with a pair of boots on um because and and i should say that i love Ben Wheatley and I don't believe that things are untouchable for example if there's a discussion around the book I am a huge fan of the book um uh, I have studied gothic literature I think the book is perfection in so many ways but you know one of my favorite Ben Wheatley films is High Rise and I think Mm. he has such a um unique take such a unique voice that's what I love about him and when people say oh you know it's not the right fit maybe of, of content and filmmaker I think a full unleashed Ben Wheatley version of Rebecca would have been amazing. Hitchcock managed to make, put his voice on Rebecca when he did it. And I think Ben would have done it. What felt disappointing is that the edges of Ben Wheatley felt like they'd been rubbed off as opposed to him putting the edges 
into this story and taking it into lots of interesting new places. So I think it, there's, there's obviously lots to discuss with the film that came before, the mm. book that came before. But yeah, I, I mean, I think John and Helen are completely right, which is I was excited by Rebecca through the eyes of Ben Wheatley. And that's not what I felt we got with this movie. Okay, well, that that's, that's really interesting because obviously having spoken to Ben about this, not just for the spoiler special, but also for the magazine. Uh, so I've had conversations with him about his approach to this movie over time. And right from the off, he said, I don't want to make a Ben Wheatley movie. When I saw the movie for the first time and then I interviewed him, I said, you know, there's no murder. No one gets killed with a hammer. There's no swearing. There's no, you know, dark, kinky murders or or sex. Not that sex is a huge part of Ben Wheatley movies. Um, and he said, oh, thank you. That's what I was going for. Why do you think he was going for that? Why do you think he wanted to kind of subsume his his own personality? And I I would argue that he doesn't. I think there's a couple little twists on on this that, that that deliver the darkness. Certainly with respect to the character, we should all possibly agree to maybe call Daphne for the sake of the movie, <laughs> the uh, the second visit to winter because that takes far too fucking long to say. Um, but why do you think he wanted to do that to bury his personality within the, the within the framework of this movie? I mean, look, I get that nobody wants to be sort of, you know, pushed into a corner or a stereotype or anything else. You know, he obviously has set out to make uh, a sort of a very mainstream movie in a lot of ways, um, in ways that maybe some of his previous films were not. Maybe he literally just wanted to show that he could make something commercial and popular and, and the, you know, wants to go through the doors that that would open. And I'm not judging anybody for any of that. I just feel like... There's probably a middle ground that I was hoping to see. I don't need him to be killing people with a hammer and turn Rebecca into a bloodbath. That's not at all what I'm saying when I say I want a bit more gothicism. I Hmm. just think that there are edges and tones and more shadows that he could have put in this, which, you know, would have reflected, yes, some of his earlier work, but also just reflect Rebecca and what Rebecca should be, to me anyway. And, uh, you know, based on based on the book, based on the previous uh, adaptations, but also just based on what I think the story is about, which is about jealousy and shadows and lack of communication and feeling insecure and feeling, uh, you know, haunted and hunted by other people feeling controlled by other people. All of these ideas kind of get lost a little bit, I thought, in this adaptation at times. There's there's so much darkness baked into the very story of Rebecca, and that's what I'm struggling with, is is it... A lot of that fell out somehow, and you know, and we'll. I'm sure we'll talk about the stuff that was built out and the early scenes of their courtship and and mm. these different tones that aren't in Hitchcock and aren't in the book either. To be perfectly honest, the book is very stark, but. I don't understand why Ben Wheatley would not want to make a Ben Wheatley film. Ben Wheatley films are brilliant. And as Helen said, that isn't about body count um, or being completely fucked up or completely subverting everything. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's about finding the elements of this story and they're all in there and turning up the dial on on certain parts, you know, the way Hitchcock did with shadows, even, and I know we'll get into this, whether you show Rebecca at any point or not, these decisions that you make as a filmmaker all speak to the filmmaker you are and the kind of story you're telling and the and the bits of Rebecca that you're choosing to drill into and to investigate. They're not the bits that I would have expected Ben Wheatley to investigate. And that's not to say he's beholden to any of us. He has to make the mm-hmm. film that he really wants to make. But I just think the opportunity to do a modern 
dog leaning back into all that gothic stuff version of Rebecca that's exciting I think I think personally that would be a film I would chop off something to watch or chop something <laughs> off of yours to watch bearing in mind it's a Ben Wheatley film <laughs> Oh, God. I've never been more glad to be socially distanced from Terry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that that struck me from, I think, one of your interviews with him, Chris, was where he talked about how he wanted to make something quite earnest. At least, like, the first half of the film is quite an earnest love story. And that seems like a very different rhythm for him he's a director who's dealt in irony a lot. Mm. I mean, you watch, like, his last film, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead, it is like irony the film it's just <laughs> there's there's a there's a sort of cynicism running through his films and maybe maybe he it feels like he wanted a new challenge and that was this that this challenge was to do something that was more sort of yeah earnest and and romantic in a way that 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 opening act is is quite like just straightforwardly romantic mm. but why what? Yeah. Sorry, to, just to shout why at you. But, you know, Daphne du Maurier spoke at great length about how frustrated she was by anybody who saw Rebecca as a romance. It is an anti-romance. And obviously there's a, a debate to be had around how much you should stick to the original author's intentions. But but I think taking uh, putting a, the love into Rebecca is a definite kind of original choice that Ben made. But is it the more interesting choice when, as Helen said, you've got ghosts, you know, and you've got the the toxicity of relationships, you've got control. Think about modern themes of gaslighting, coercive control, all of these things that are super relevant that actually a modern look at Rebecca could take in. The love that he built out, which you're entirely right, he does, and that's all him, is a very surprising choice and maybe that makes it interesting but for me that that betrayed the original mm. work or the story that I believe to be Rebecca I would agree with that I think that that the it it may be a love story from well we're going to call her Daphne from Daphne's eyes from the the second Mr. Mrs. de Winter's eyes cuz she doesn't know any better she doesn't know what love is she doesn't know what it looks like um but you have to be she clear as a viewer what love is. i know and she wants him to show her which he does <laughs> repeatedly but um <laughs> but like she she doesn't know what she's looking for please don't start with you two as well and she doesn't understand what she gets as a result and therefore yeah. you have to make that clear to the audience even if you're playing it as a love story from for her i feel like we as the audience have to be clear that there's more going on and i don't think that was always the case and i think that is important to establishing his character and to establishing the problem she's about to get into when they actually go home yeah okay well let me drop chris's big theory on you okay okay uh which i think delivers all the required darkness and then some. And Ben, in fairness, distanced himself from my theory a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> the filmmaker so is subscribing. Chris is definitely wrong Chris's theory. big bullshit theory. <laughs> but, you know, hey, listen. Richard Donner said that uh, in his commentary for The Omen that, that Damien isn't the Antichrist. So he's misread his own film. Uh, and Robert Zemeckis <laughs> isn't entirely sure whether Jodie Foster went to space in contact. So he's misread his own film. Of course she fucking went to space. Of course she went to space. There were 19 <laughs> hours of static. <laughs> what are you doing? Hours. Jesus Come Christ, on. man. Oh, it can't be a coincidence that Damien is the Antichrist. Look at all the signs. Uh, anyway, so now and again, you know, people like me can stumble into a theory and get things right. Okay, so... Here's my, here's Chris's, Alan's deep bath. This is Chris's big theory. <laughs> All right. So the beginning of the, the entire movie is a 
flashback, but it's also a dream sequence within a flashback. So the whole thing is told by Daphne, a.k.a. the second Mrs. De Winter, a.k.a. Lily James. So my take on it is that she she's not entirely a reliable narrator. She's not entirely telling us what's what 100%. There's a little bit more to her than meets the eye. She's Optimus Prime is what I'm saying. This is an early Transformers movie, and this is how Meg comes into it later on for the sequel. No, I don't think she's telling us the entire truth. I think the lead love story is painted entirely from her point of view, from her side. Mm. And I'm going to put this to you that perhaps, perhaps, and I'm not saying she's a confidence trickster. I'm not saying that uh, Maxim is a mark in any way, shape or form. But I'm saying this is perhaps, perhaps, perhaps social climbing in a very interesting way, shall we say. Oh, I mean, no. I mean, look, class is absolutely a, mm-hmm. a factor and and that feeling of being out of place and of people obeying rules that they haven't explained to you and you don't understand and you've never been taught. All of that mm-hmm. is absolutely a thing. Her class consciousness um, and her, her awareness of her own lack of, of experience and knowledge and all those things are hugely, hugely important. To call her a social climber, though, I think is just unbelievably unfair. You've also got to think about when this was set, right? So there's that there's that really telling line after the ball, which is in the book where she said, there's nothing as shaming, as degrading as a marriage that has failed. And there's a sense, and this is another thing which runs through um, and would be interesting through a modern perspective, which is that sense on women to make your marriage work, to become mistress of the house, where your value is placed, how you're seen as a success as a wife. I'm sure obligation and the fact that this is now her life play massively into it. But I think that, and I think there are interesting differences in how Ben's created the second Mrs. De Winter. And I have to call her the second Mrs. De Winter because Daphne is not canonical Daphne's, and it feels incorrect. Yeah, to keep Daphne's confusing. To I mean, I don't mind calling her like Bob or something clearly wrong, but it feels confusing to call her Daphne. Because I, I think he's made her. He, when actually the, the second Mrs. De Winter in the book, when it opens, you know, it describes she has lanky hair and bitten nails and she's docile <laughs> and nervous and, and compliant. And I think... She's actually much different here. I think Ben has done something interesting in giving her a little bit more agency, which does change some of the dynamics and Mm -hmm. could change the interpretation to your point, Chris. But she is stronger. She has confrontations earlier Mm -hmm. um, with Mrs. Danvers. She does have a bit more of an inner steel to her than you see in the book. You know, it's hard to make Lily James this kind of complete mouse with lanky hair. Have you seen her hair? Although I do think it's a wig. Um, So that's probably a moot point. (laughs) But I think there are I think there are interesting differences in this version of her, who is definitely has more agency. I'm not sure for me, Lily James is is the best second Mrs. De Winter, you know. But I do think there are differences and nuances with this particular version of Mrs. De Winter. Yeah, I mean the the casting itself is a choice, right? There there was mm-hmm. a lot of I saw a lot of people who were very uh, cynical about the casting before this movie came out. I, I think like Army Hammer is quite young to play Mr. De Winter, I think yeah, in the book. He's, he's he's a lot older and a lot sort of, yeah, a lot more, you know, grizzled. 
And like you say, yeah, the second Mrs. De Winter tends is sort of written as being quite meek and and you know, for want of a better word, plain, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, she's always in the shadow of of Rebecca's beauty. And so you've got these two very young, beautiful people. It seems like an unusual sort of pairing. Mm. But that in itself is a choice. I, I went in a bit skeptical to the movie, but I thought they have this chemistry and and that sort of works for what he's trying to do. And I also liked Army Hammer. I mean, Army Hammer's like ridiculous sort of preppy privilege that you, you, you sort of play, he plays into that in the social network, obviously. Mm. And he plays into that a little bit here as well. He's, he's sort of exuding just pure wealth. Like he's just like a walking dollar bill. I think that works for the character. I think my, my issue with him is he, he does feel like a walking dollar bill and not a walking pound note. Um, and I, I don't yeah. often make an issue of American versus British casting because I think a lot of people go back and forth brilliantly. And it's not even about his accent, but I think he embodies a kind of American vision of wealth rather than a British vision of wealth. Because quite frankly, most British aristocrats are far weedier than he is. Mm. Uh, apart from <laughs> anything else, he's just too kind of big. And, and I get um, the I visual think contrast. Jacob Small will beg to differ, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Helen's right, though, right? Like Lawrence Olivier, that brooding, intense, there's, there's privilege at the heart of it. But every time Army Hammer came on screen, it was so preppy. Weirdly, and preppy for me is not who he is. He's um, cold and mm-hmm. aloof. And when he erupts, his temper is something to fear. But when Army Hammer kind of lost his temper and shouted at her, I kind of didn't by that at all the 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 toxicity between them the the kind of passion and infatuation and this toxicity doesn't come through i didn't find their chemistry together particularly convincing um and i think a large part of that for me was because he didn't feel like maxim to me there was something he could he, there's something innately on army hammer about him in this mm. if you see what i mean that just doesn't mm. make that leap he didn't feel like maxim he felt like loaded Felt like nuts. Hey, hey, nuts, boobs, isn't it? Tits. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That is one thing I I don't think they they quite got right. Um, because Maxim fades into the background in the in the second third of the movie in the second act, which which takes place in in Manderley, and Danvers comes to the foreground. I think Mm. they got Danvers right. Absolutely. I think Kristen Scott Thomas Mm. is fantastic in this. But you're right, because I don't think the sparks fly necessarily between Lily James and Army Hammer in, in this movie. So therefore, whenever he suddenly becomes aloof and cold, I don't think you quite got the impact on her. And then he's off screen for quite a large part of the second act as well. So that perhaps diminished the impact of that also. Uh, but just to clarify a little bit well, what I meant in terms of the second Mrs. De Winter's motivations, I'm not saying by any stretch of imagination she's some sort of Kaiser Soze-esque mastermind who was plotting her way into uh, you know, into Manderley and into Maxim's life at all. I think there's maybe, born out of her situation Situation. And obviously, when she gets to Manderley and begins to see the the world in which her husband works, uh, doesn't want to lose that essentially. And so it, it it comes down to you know, is she backing him at the end, or is she backing the lifestyle? I still think it's the lifestyle. But it's not that simple. It's not as simple as she sees an opportunity and she goes for it. Is there are? It's not like there's an. A, other opportunities. She is a woman without family, without recourse, without means. She doesn't have 
a lot of options, you know. I mean, if you think about, and I'm I'm drawing from other sort of fiction here, but like so, think about something like Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day, right? If you've seen the film or read the book, that's a woman, a working woman around the same time who loses her job and then is on the streets in soup kitchens until she finds a new job. And that's a respectable, in, in inverted commas, working uh, middle class and in inverted commas woman of the time. It's, it's not as simple as, oh, it's opportunism. It's a situation where women were entirely dependent on men most of the time. And that is not a bug. It's a feature of the patriarchy, <laughs> which they'd set up. Yeah. But as I said, the whole thing is told from her point of view. It's viewed through her prism. And it's also told as a, it's not just a, a flashback. It's a mm. flashback in a dream. So I'm not entirely sure how much of what she tells us we can take at face value. I think there's a reason she looks at the camera at the end of the movie. All gothic literature, right, famously features unreliable narrators. That's, mm. yep. you know, that's, that's the kind of interesting thing about it and why it was so important that perspective was kept, I think, which obviously you're, you're then always going to see either a sympathetic view from their perspective or they're centering their own story but I, to Helen's point it is a case of it's probably a combination of all of these things right as life is mm. is part of it maybe um where she finds her value where she's told her value is she mm -hmm. has no independent ways of living and at that point she is entirely dependent on her husband leaving just isn't an option even if he did kill his wife you know it's mm. like it's not like he's he's perfect husband material by that point um so i think they both end up and we'll i know we'll get into the ending but they'll mm. both end up in a in a situation they've kind of they've got themselves into this corner and that's the reality of it mm. quite starkly mm. one of the things we talked about so far has been the presence of rebecca and the fact that i think it was you terry said that you know they're a ghost so i think people when people think of rebecca uh, whether they've read the book or seen the Hitchcock film. And let's be honest here, I don't think many people have seen the Hitchcock film. It's 80 years old. It's not widely available. Um, it's really hard to get. It's not even on YouTube, <laughs> would you believe? And so I don't think loads and loads of people have seen it. And I would be surprised, you know, if quite a few cast members hadn't read the book when I interviewed them either. So <laughs> no, name me, no names. But uh, I'd be surprised that loads and loads of people have read the book, classic as it is as well. But when I think when people hear the term Rebecca and they hear the word gothic, I think they think ghost, as in literal ghost, mm. as in, whoa, they come back to Mandalay and the ghost of Rebecca haunts every single frame. That's not what happens here. And this is a deliberate choice not to have that because you could, you could easily make the choice to have her manifest as a ghost of some kind in this, in this film. He doesn't do that. He splits the film, I think, into three specific and separate genres, one pertaining to each act. And the first act is unironic, sun-kissed love story in the south of France. Call me by your name, too. Um, act two is not the gothic horror story that I think people might expect from Ben Wheatley. It is instead a psychological thriller. It is about uh, gaslighting. It is about toxic masculinity and toxic femininity as well. And it is really interesting that he does that and he goes for that. And then Act 3 becomes some sort of weird detective thriller slash courtroom drama, which I which I found was interesting. Plus, they, they, they tack on, they change some of the stuff at the ending. They go beyond where the book ends, of course. So what, what I think is when people heard Rebecca and they heard Ben Wheatley, they thought, it was going to be a ghost story. They thought it was going to really lean into the gothic stuff. I wonder 
whether that's even possible in a post-Crimson Peak world, for example, because Guillermo del Toro took the basic structure of Rebecca and completely del Toro'd it. And Mm. that film is so freaky and ghost-laden and full of all the little details, incidental details, you know, words written in the wallpaper that you would never see, but are there to conjure the atmosphere around the actors. But I wonder if he's made it, he's he's poisoned the waters a little bit for filmmakers to follow in his footsteps. So Wheatley decided to go somewhere else with it. What, what do you think? Well, he did, I will clarify, he obviously does show her, right? You don't see her yeah. face, but you see the figure of her, which is more than either the book or the Hitchcock version did. And I mm-hmm. think to your point, it's kind of what people think Rebecca is as opposed yeah. to what it is, because... The, the book is, it's and Hitchcock, it's psychological, what I would call psychological horror. So it plays with horror tropes, but it's really a psychological thriller um, inside this woman's mind, which is why it's so important it's told from her perspective. I did think it was interesting that he chose to show her as a figure. I thought that was a, obviously a very deliberate choice that Ben Wheatley made, which I yeah. do think is interesting because the whole point of Rebecca of the world's most beautiful woman, you know, the most stunning woman everybody's ever seen, that your imagination conjures a woman that could never be done justice to on screen. And there was something kind of when I saw the figure in this film where I felt a bit disappointed, like I wish I hadn't seen it because mm. Rebecca for me only exists in everybody's imagination, even though we obviously know that that she was a real person. So I think he's leaning into proper classic Rebecca by not having the literal ghosts and the bumps in the night because those elements, he's, he's for me, is being much more in the spirit of the book there. Mm. Mm. Naturally, I didn't ask him about that, but um, <laughs> I had it on my list of questions. Who's that playing Rebecca? Why did you choose to show her as a figure? And even in the, in the dream sequence, we see her kind of manifest as... Mm. The vines, yeah. Mm. The vines, yes, that's it. Well, I, you know, I definitely don't think it's a ghost story in the literal sense, but I do think you need that sense of being oppressed by a presence that isn't that you can't see. And and so I feel like I, I would have liked in that middle third in particular, but kind of carrying on towards the end a little bit more, maybe a little bit more of the sense of that oppressiveness and the sense of that just endless comparison to an impossible ideal, because I think that's actually one of the most relatable and one of the most powerful things in Rebecca, which is that we all have this tendency, and I think it's particularly true of women, particularly sort of um, women who've moved class. I think it's probably also a, a massive thing where you're endlessly conscious of yourself and you're conscious of working towards some ideal and you're conscious of failing to measure up to some ideal. I mean, it's, it happens nowadays in terms of, you know, bodies in magazines. And this is now mm. something that men are having to grapple with as well. But like, we're constantly measuring ourselves against these literally impossible ideals that are entirely airbrushed. And that's kind Army of Hammer, who Rebecca Lily is. Army Hammer, yeah, yeah, Lily James, yeah. But like, that's that's what Rebecca is. She's the airbrushed model of perfection. She's the yeah. Instagram version of you that you can never actually live up to in your day to day life. And you need to have that sense, really, kind of just hammering the second Mrs. De Winter all through her time at Mandalay. Do you think enough was made of Rebecca? Do you think her presence was manifested enough in the film? I think she's in pretty much every single scene in Mandalay, either either mm. the second Mrs. De Winter, aka Daphne, aka Lily James, pumps into someone who 
knows her or knew her or slept with her or did something or you know she breaks some crockery associated with her or there's some there's something that that Rebecca wants to that she fucks up in some way so she's always there no and I do think but the courtroom expanding the courtroom drama making mm. that a much bigger part of the third act I I kind of could have stayed with Rebecca and with Mandalay a lot longer that yeah. for me was unnecessary um, and I think you're right I think it falls into those three almost different kinds of films at that point and I would have happily had had Rebecca much more kind of like the book to right towards the end yeah interesting so we talk, should we talk about the end we haven't really talked about Danvers yet but I guess Danvers ties into the end so the, the book ends with them driving back towards Manjali and the ashes blowing towards them on the breeze and, you know, Danvers, it is presumed, uh, because we only have one viewpoint in the book, uh, is has, you know, has torched Manjali and it's all gone to shit. Uh, but we never get to learn of, of Danvers' final fate. We never really get to see what happens to Manjali and we don't get to see what happens after that, all of which we do in this movie, what did we make of the changes Alaire from 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 Wheatley and his screenwriters? So Jane Goldman wrote the original script, and Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse did a pass as well. So what do we make of those changes? Well, I'm going to cut to the chase. I so in the film, the com- the confrontation between the new Mrs. De Winter and Danvers on the cliff, steps off the cliff, obviously tops herself. I And I understand, and I've read something that Ben said, and, he, and Chris, he may have said this in his interview with you, was that he kind of, it's it's bringing her fate full circle with Rebecca's. It's kind of testament yeah. to their relationship because obviously Rebecca's been in the sea all that time. I really, I just didn't need that. Like, the, you know, the book, obviously, you've got a kind of a burning building. You presume she's in it. You don't know she's dead. You don't see a body. Um... And, you know, for this to end with that confrontation, with her definitely stepping off and then kind of with them, I just, I I felt like it was unnecessary. There's still an ambiguity in the book. Um, and I have read something saying, well, how do we know after she stepped off the cliff that she didn't survive, which seems like a stretch to me. But <laughs> yeah. It's not going to turn into Friday the 13th with Dan Bruce <laughs> coming back waterlogged, barnacles everywhere, killing people. <laughs> but I, I don't <laughs> think you needed that to seal her fate with Rebecca. I think that you you understand their connection and, and where that sits in terms of um, queer theory is a whole other thing, right? Whether this is actually has sapphic overtones yeah. um, or whether it's something born out of them growing up together their entire lives. But I, I didn't need that final confrontation. There's an interesting argument about whether um, the second Mrs. De Winter needed that moment, that final moment of resolution and where she once and for all stood up to her. And I don't know, I it, I didn't need it. I could have happily stuck with the the existing ending. Yeah, it's a gorgeous shot, but I would agree with that. I don't think you need it. I think um I think I think Kristen Scott Thomas is the best thing in this film for me. I I think she's her performance is just so I mean it's it's kind of a joy to watch just how she's she's kind of almost chewing up the scenery and and how malicious she is. And they they sort of toy with this idea of making her feel sort of vaguely sympathetic at least in, you know, one scene. I, I kind of wish they'd explored that a bit more. They, you know, they explore this idea that you were talking about, Helen, about you know the the sort of the structures that women of this era are forced into, and the the class, the the structure, the the limitations that class puts on women, um, 
you you get a sense of her motivations in a way that perhaps you didn't in the in the Hitchcock mm. film. Uh, so I really like that, and I and yeah, I would have liked to have seen more of that, and and more of the the sort of homosexual undertones that of the relationship she has with Rebecca. That's interesting. I I I, I took her more of seeing so Rebecca as a as a as a really good friend or a daughter a daughter figure in, in some way. But do you think you know the the, the the idea that Danvers is in the right, uh, Maxim is a shitbag, he's a toxic shitbag, he's weak, he's, you know, he's a lily-livered coward, he killed Rebecca in cold blood. All of that comes to the fore, of course. Uh, do you think that absolves Danvers in, in any way, shape or form? Or do we think this, for example, a scene where she tries to basically tempt the second Mrs. Winter, a.k.a. Lily James, a.k.a. Daphne, uh, to basically just toss herself out of a window, robs her of, of any sympathy and makes her a, a moustache twirling badden? Well, I hate to be the one to say this, given my general rants about this topic, but you can have sympathy for a badden. They can, you know, Wait it's a not second. quite that simple a dichotomy. You're right. The scene where Mrs. Danvers wants to stop global warming, I thought That's was particularly. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My pet hate. Oh my god, I'm so annoyed about it. Anyway, um, but no, I, like I think I think it's both. I think she is clearly heartbroken at the loss of Rebecca. She is clearly, you know. Acting, acting out of pain, and also causing enormous amounts of pain, and also acting in a quite villainous way. And I think that's those two things usually go hand in hand. Never mind, you know, often going hand in hand. I think it's mm. generally speaking, bad people have been hurt themselves, and then they act out by taking that hurt out on other people. It's not to excuse it. It's just that's what happens. Um, the trick is to, you know, turn your pain into something more positive, I guess, but it's it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, she missed that self-help class, I think. I think she did. Mrs. <laughs> Danvers. But I think it also depends on on the specific iteration of Maxim, right? To your point, it, there's, there's a version of the book where he kills her just brutally out of anger. Obviously, in the Hitchcock film, Helen, you, I'm sure you yeah. know all about this. Reading your book, by the way, amazing. The Hays Code <laughs> restrictions for Hitchcock, which meant, uh, what, did she fall and hit her head? The, the yeah. moral code that they had to shoot by. Obviously, there's a slight tweak in Wheatley's where she essentially provoked him for other reasons. And so he's kind of absolved of a bit of responsibility. I think everybody is a slightly softer version of themselves. And I, mm. I remember at first thinking, I don't know if I want Danvers to have a human side. I kind of like that gothic villainy where not everybody has to have a backstory that you kind of sympathise with and, and you see their reasons and things like that. But it, for me, it made sense with, with that kind of softening of Maxim's mm. culpability for her to also be softened in the same way for them all to be treated with the same amount of humanity, almost. At the risk of contradicting everything I just said, but just spurred <laughs> by something that Terry just said, it, like, do you think we as a society focus too much on sympathising with villains these days? And I know this goes to my wider point about hating, you know, global warming being used as a as a um, a trope for vill for villains' motivations. But I feel like we're obsessed with coming up with good reasons for bad people to act as they do, and and maybe we should be less obsessed with that and just focus more on yeah. you know good people trying to do the right thing. I, I think a lot of this comes from. 
talking to actors over the years. Like, how mm-hmm. many times have you spoken to an actor who's playing an unrepentant shitbag, yeah. right? And you've gone, so, God, you're playing the bad guy in this. And he goes, well, I don't really think of my character as a villain. And I don't think he thinks himself <laughs> as, a, as a villain as well. Although well, well, he's just keep driven a busload of children into the water. I mean, you know, he just killed everyone. Well, I still think his motivations are pure from his point of view. Uh, that that shit yeah. needs to stop right now. We we perhaps we're culpable in not shutting that down. Like next time that happens on the podcast, we need to go stop that. Stop that. You're the bad guy. You just Mr. Just, Clooney. No, yeah. no, yes. you're just bad. Right? I'm sorry. When has George ever played the bad guy? Has I don't he played know. the bad guy? He, I one, think he one has. fine day. One he fine has day. Oh, hey. he's conflicted. He's got he's got a lot going on. Um, from, it, dust till, from dust till dawn. It's the underpinnings of society, right? The underpinnings yeah. of society is that we are all fundamentally good people who, if there is evil, if there are acts of evil, it's been caused by something else. It's the only reason we can all get up, continue living in this world, continue engaging with each other, and because we have to believe in the innate goodness of people and we have to be able to attribute reason to acts of evil because there's no such thing as innate evil because if there was innate evil and those people couldn't be reasoned with or stopped then what is the point in society what is the point in law what is the point in any of it this has nothing to do with Rebecca but yes basically I agree with I agree with Helen what I I do not mind a especially with something like this a I don't need to know the shades of dampers I don't need to know the terrible thing that happened that made her a complete roaring bitch of a woman that is fine <laughs> let bad I, be bad let you bad know? be bad that's it has a dramatic purpose but but i think the film asks the question is she even the villain of the piece mm. and surely the villain of the piece is is maxim and mm. or or you could even make an argument jack favell uh they don't come out this movie very well blokes uh and even rebecca herself i mean from all reports danvers aside and danvers seems outrageously biased it seems that rebecca may not have been all sweetness and light. And her oh no, Rebecca is definitely a psychopath. Like yeah. Rebecca is, is a cold-blooded <laughs> bitch. Like there is no question about that. But you know, same with all the first wives, right? Think about Mrs. Rochester. Like, oh, well, she was mad, so I had to lock her in an attic. Like, there's always a good reason to lock the first wives in the attic, or you know, shoot them and bury them at sea. <laughs> This is why they have to phone clubs, first wives. <laughs> right? <laughs> there was never a sequel to that, was there? Honestly. There um, wasn't. It's in my book. There oh, really? Basically, they asked that the film did really well, First Wives Club, and they yeah. asked for, um, they'd done it kind of, not quite for scale, but they'd done it all at a massive discount on their usual fees. Mm-hmm. So the film did well. They said, well, great, we'll get a pay rise for the second one. And the studio was like, no. Duh. And they said, well, fuck that then. Duh. So that's Helen's book, Women versus Hollywood. What's the subtitle? The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, available in... February. On... Uh, before months, paper. paper. <laughs> you, need, you need to sharpen this patter up before the book comes. <laughs> By the way, if you're on breakfast TV and you go, and so where's it available, Helen? You go, uh, you know, it's not going to fly. Bookshops. What is book? Siri, what is book? Uh, yes, so pick that book up when it's out in February as well. But yeah, it is Maxim ultimately because he is a steaming shitbag of a person, and I, I really like the fact that Army Hammer is is good at that side of Maxim. I, you know, he captures the the diminishment of the character from this sort of idealized golden god in his golden suit, you know, very dapper and very dashing in the opening third. And then by the end, you know, he is very much, very much looking to the second Mrs. De Winter, mm. very much protected by her, very much the, the lesser half of that relationship, I would say. 
I mean, the costumes are gorgeous in the film, but mm. everyone seems to have gone nuts for that suit, and suit. I don't really understand it. They're saying if he's so rich, why does he wear the same suit day after day after day? <laughs> yeah, that does seem wrong. Two days in a row? Come on. No, maybe he's just like uh, Albert Einstein or, or Bruce Banner. He just has the same suit. Number, I don't you know, think he is, though. Take away all you know, And if you only had one suit, choice. would it really be mustard? Oh, he's mustard, though, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he is mustard. <laughs> Wheatley said, uh, and not in the Sporter Special interview, but in one of my interviews with him, uh, Ben said that uh, the idea behind that is that he's wearing a golden suit by the at the beginning, she's wearing a golden suit at the end. So the the, mm. the power in a relationship, the idea of of one of them being the prize to be won, has has shifted in in our relationship. Um, so I think That's there's a lot more idea. going on here, and there's a lot more built into the production design and the uh, the cinematography, which is great. Then perhaps people are are given the credit for. I have to say, I I, I really like this film, and I was. Bit surprised when it started getting a kicking by film Twitter, um, but but I still I still wonder if it if there's a little bit of now it's Ben's time for a kicking. Does it feel a little oh, bit like no. that? I don't think so. I think people love him and and we mm. love him. I think I think when your biggest complaint from people like us is we would love to have seen more of him and what we take to be him in it, that that's kind of a compliment because we love his film so much and, and much. And I agree with you. The cinematography is beautiful. There's some mm-hmm. really interesting camera work. The production design is lush and gorgeous. Um, but, you know, I think it's part of the, I wouldn't say poison chalice, but part of the challenge of taking on something like this, which I think is iconic both in film, but also in literature. Um, I think mm. it's one of it's one of those things. And I think it maybe it's a challenge of a distributor like, like Netflix being the one to partner with on it. There are, you know, which is a, as you pointed to earlier, it's, it's a very commercial mass market space. And I, I think it's not that there's anything wrong with this film. I think it's, we would have loved lots more Wheatley-ness. Yes. <laughs> lots more Wheatley. Wheatleyfication. But listen, we're going to get that from his next movie, whatever it may be. At the moment, it looks like it. it I, I thought it was going to, well, but we know what it's going to be because he shot a movie in lockdown. Uh, I'm not sure what it's going to be called, but uh, it's going to be a much more Ben Wheatley style lockdown horror film so I think you know that'll tick that box and then after that I thought he was going to do Tomb Raider 2 with uh, Alicia Vikander but I'm not sure anymore now he's attached to the Meg 2 there's tons of stuff that's been announced and you know with his name on it over the years from things like Hard Boiled with Tom Hiddleston to uh, Freak Shift I think with Army Hammer again and um I I'm Macro Bane there's loads and loads of stuff and a remake of Wages of Fear my god I mean, he's busy enough. He can do them all, I, I firmly believe. I would yeah. say, if, if anybody out there has seen Tom Hiddleston in Betrayal on stage, wherein he's absolutely fabulous, mm-hmm. in the first act of Betrayal, he's a very Maxim de Winter type figure. And I think he might have been a better call in some ways than Army Hammer for this. But then again, do you have the Crimson Peak thing? I know. Well, I know that's exactly why he's in Crimson Peak, I think, because he is that dude. But. Um, I mean, he literally is that dude. <laughs> he literally <laughs> is that dude. Um, I think, first of all, he's one of those actors who is about 20 times better on stage than he is on film. Mm. And he's good on film, don't get me wrong. Um, but but I feel like we're not entirely exploring his Laurence Olivier-ness. And I think this might have been a film to do it. Uh, the, the commercial thing, I think, is interesting. I, I do wonder if if like that is an element in it, that he's been given this huge Netflix budget and perhaps that is... Uh, there's sort of that 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 has a part to play in in how it looks because it feels mm. very glossy and mainstream and the first trailer for the film 
got a bit of a kicking on film Twitter. It, I mean, it sort of looks it's been, it's been marketed almost like a Fifty Shades of Grey film, which you know <laughs> it is not. But uh, but that is it seems to be the market that it's trying to appeal to. It's mm. trying to go towards this sort of Instagram generation, most of whom won't be familiar with that original story. Mm. And so it's getting this mm. sort of glossy, like, romance slash life psychological drama for millennials or for Gen Zers. But don't you think it could be glossy and still Rebecca? I don't think that's necessarily mutually exclusive. I feel like it could be that glossy. I mean, the, the Hitchcock film was a big production. It was his first, you know, US film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it could be both glossy and, and even sexy and also Rebecca in a mm. way that this doesn't quite hit for me. Obviously, my big theory has been debunked by nonsense by both the film's director and uh, by my three colleagues of such Lisa <laughs> Cunning as well. But listen, I think if you apply Chris's big theory to this movie, you get all the darkness that you want from a Ben Wheatley movie. You get all the cynical edges that you want from a Ben Wheatley movie. I think that's what it is, guys. So ultimately, I think, in conclusion... I'm the best one. <laughs> That's a bold conclusion to draw, Chris. But it's a bold uh, conclusion good luck to draw. To but, you. <laughs> but I think that people are dismissing it. Necess- I think people are dismissing this movie and saying there's nothing to it. I think there is something to it. I think it. I'm not saying it's going to get revisited and reclaimed over the years, but there's more to this movie than I think that meets the eye. That's what I'm saying. And also, I'm the best one. But even if you even if you take it on face value, there is a lot in this film. I don't think there's nothing in that this mm. film. I don't understand yeah. that position at all because there there is a lot. Even even if you've described these three kind of separate parts of the film, um, mm. so I think there's plenty to chew on. It's where it's where you sit on the Rebecca story. I think. But John makes a really interesting point. If I'm 24. Probably could be, yeah. could easily pass for 24. So if I'm 24 um, <laughs> and I've never read the book and I've definitely never seen the Hitchcock film and, and I, c- I come across this, then maybe may- maybe this would actually work for yeah. me. Obviously, yeah. Netflix aren't known for releasing the uh, viewing figures or what even cl- counts as a view these days, but um, be interested to see what maybe a, y- a younger audience. But as, as Helen says, even with that younger audience, I think there are elements of Rebecca, the story, that would have made this kind of probably a lot more gripping um, and potentially interesting. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll we'll see how it plays in a couple of years' time, and we'll see whether you know whether twenty-four-year-olds are are absolutely into this. I can see it. I can absolutely see it. I see a twenty-four-year-old. You come home after a long day of rollerblading. You you sit down. You take your blades off. You feed your tamagotchi, and and then you go. What do I what do I do? You're what so do I hip, what do I, Chris. So what hip. do I do for a bit of entertainment? You fire up your 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 phone box and uh, and you stick on stick on a bit of Rebecca. That's what you that's what you want. That's what you maybe Noah Centineo should have been. Um, <laughs> maybe that's maybe he that's would make he would make a lovely second Mrs. De Winter if we're really updating <laughs> it. I mean. <laughs> Uh, last thing is I want to give a shout out to some of the there's really really good performances in this movie uh, uh, as well um, and we haven't really mentioned Sam Riley who gives a top cadding as Jack Favell that moustache oh oh I mean, you, you just know he's a cad. Do not trust this man. There's a big arrow and a big flashing arrow pointing to him. Do not trust this man or believe anything he says yes. the second he appears on screen. He, uh, he commits. He does commit, doesn't he? He really does. Anne Dowd as Mrs. Van Hopper. She's yeah. good Yeah. in the early part of the movie. 
I I love whenever Anne Dowd comes on my screen, I'm always quite happy because she's playing an Anne Dowd type, you know, and it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's never going to be a small performance from Anne Dowd, you know, it's, she's always going to be quite a, it's always a big character. Mm. And you've got uh, the likes of uh, Bill Patterson pops up uh, towards the end. We were talking in the last week's podcast about great uh, directors who use the same actors over, over, over and over again, the same ensembles over and over again. And we forgot to mention Ben Wheatley, who has basically the Ben Wheatley repertory company, um, only a couple of whom actually show up in this one, Keely Hawes and uh, Bill Patterson and people like that. But uh, I really like Mark Lewis-Jones, who is the chief inspector, the, the, the police inspector who turns up towards the end and knows that Maxim's a Baden and knows that he did it and knows he's a wrong and, and knows he should go away uh, or maybe even see the the end of the noose. Uh, he's really, really good. He's also in um, episode five of Gangs of London, which is which is tremendous. Uh, but yeah, good performances across the board. I even liked Army Hammer. So sue me. So sue me. <laughs> I don't think he's bad. I just didn't feel he was right for the role. It's one of those things, you know, somebody can be miscast and still act very well. Like think about Angelina Jolie and The Changeling. Totally wrong for that role, but she's mm. brilliant. But she's just totally wrong for the role. Yeah, and I think I think like uh you know, I think it's probably fair to say Lily James is too beautiful to play the the second Mrs. De Winter, but I but I thought she did a really good job, especially in the early stage of the film, of being this very sort of nervous, almost like schoolgirlish type character where she's she doesn't seem very worldly. Like she seems very naive and young. And you do see that journey uh in the film. Last thing, what do you think of the she looks at the camera at the end of the movie. Uh she looks at us, she's she's looking at the audience. Why does she do that? What's your what's your take on that? I felt like it was her ultimate moment of agency. So mm. Ben gave her more agency as a character. And to mm-hmm. your point about the switch of power, they may mm. they may no longer be living in a mansion. They may be getting their kicks from reading cricket magazines, um, stuffed oh, yeah. in a in a foreign hotel in exile in the boiling hot with no air conditioning. But she's um, the dominant person. I want to watch this film again now and understand that shot with Chris Hewitt's widely discredited theory. <laughs> see, if, uh, <laughs> see if that shot has any more impact. It's, I, I would agree more with Terry. I think it's more of an I am someone to be reckoned with look. Um, I do think, though, that I wondered if there was a little kind of uh, nod there to Daphne de Maurier his, herself, who apparently when she was d- supposed to deliver the book, went on a holiday to Egypt and I think was trying to write while she was there. So I was wondering if there was there was a little kind of clever nod to her. <laughs> Dear Daphne, where's the where's the book? Stop. <laughs> Get the telegram back. Fuck off. Stop. <laughs> in Cairo. So sorry, in Cairo, stop. Hanging out with Brendan Fraser and the cast of The Mummy, probably. Wow, that there is slash fiction that we need to write uh, immediately. <laughs> so let's let's stop doing this and go do that instead, because that is it for our Rebecca Spoiler Special. Once again, if you are listening to this, it means you have subscribed to the Spoiler Special channel. For that, we cannot thank you enough, and we hope to repay your faith with loads and loads of Spoiler Specials uh, over the next few weeks. So we're going to be starting uh, our weekly Mandalorian Spoiler Specials are back and will be running for the duration of Season 2 of The Mandalorian. So that's going to start next Monday, which is the what of what it's the 2nd of November 2nd uh, of November 2nd of yes. November 2nd of November so there'll be every Monday from that point on as well other supporter specials that will be coming your way in November include Freaky uh, and that will be with the director Christopher Landon so that's a, the body swap horror comedy with Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton um, I don't know if I can say it's a lot of fun because that would be breaking embargo I think 
pretend I didn't say that. We're doing spoiler special for Ghosts, the second series of the brilliant BBC sitcom with some of the creative team behind that and also the cast members because they're the same people. And um, we'll also be doing a retro spoiler special for Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero's classic 1978 zombie flick with one of the film's stars, Scott H. Reiniger. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So do keep spreading the word, do keep listening and do keep subscribing. And thank you very, very much indeed for doing so. Right, that is it. It is time to push off and say thank you and goodbye to our three colleagues of such lethal cunning, our editor-in-chief, bow your heads, avert your eyes, Terry White. Of what? As they say in Egypt. <laughs> they certainly don't say it in France. Is <laughs> au revoir <laughs> from John Nugent. Uh, bye. <laughs> bye bye John uh, it's goodbye <laughs> it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara toodaloo <laughs> toodaloo toodaloo and it's goodbye from me I am off to spread Chris's incredible theory <laughs> like a virus no we've already got one of those damn it oh no uh, oh no what a shame uh, anyway I'm off to go to Mandalay again oh Robbie Williams The Road to Mandalay that's a really good song by the way you should listen to that <laughs> thanks for listening see you next time bye bye bye